Now, after the Ten Commandments have been given, there is a, a sort of a bookend to what was begun at chapter 19, and then in another sense, it, it will prepare us for what comes through the rest of the book. So very important that we keep that in mind this evening as we look at this together. Exodus 20, beginning in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that, you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you have ever spent much time reading the great biographies throughout church history, and especially those biographies about the great ministers of the gospel in church history, one of the common themes that you often find is that before these men, and these are many times the greatest men, the Luthers, these are, these are the great men that God used, the Edwards, the Thomas Halliburtons, these great figures, that one of the common themes that you find is that before these men came to know the Lord, they had these experiences of having the law really crash down on them in a terrifying and dreadful way. They, they found themselves wrestling with unease in their souls. They found themselves bothered by the law. They found themselves troubled in their consciences. And that's a good thing, because remember John Bunyan, when he was recounting that experience, that was for him the wicked gate that he needed to go through in order to get to the cross. Now, let me say this tonight. That is not necessarily an experience that every Christian has to have to the same degree that certain other Christians have had it. There has been a mistake in church history where some people have mistakenly taught the people of God, unless you've had this dreadful, terrible experience of the law crashing down on your conscience and bringing you to a place of spiritual despair where you finally cried out to Christ, you're not converted. That is just patently unhelpful to people. In fact, it can be spiritually dangerous to, to treat everyone as if they had to have that experience. And yet, it is true that all of us have to have the law do its work in our hearts in order for us to see our need for Christ. It is also true that we should feel, any time we read the law of God, our unworthiness, our sinfulness, our inadequacy, our inability. 
those are good and right things. You know, it was attributed to John Bunyan, though. There's a question whether he actually wrote this. A little line to a poem, and he says this. says, run, John, run, the law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Run, John, run, the law demands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Well, that's important because here as we come to Exodus 20, 18 and following, we have just concluded the Ten Commandments. And I think I mentioned to you throughout that it was actually quite difficult for me to preach on any number of the Ten Commandments. Because when you start to see the perfection of the law, when you start to see the depths of the law, when you start to see what God really requires of us, the absolute perfection that the law requires, everything that we are to render to God by way of obedience to it, everything we are not to do by way of disobeying it, that, that we are left, in a sense, feeling uh, a sentence of condemnation at times because we know how, how much we have sinned. Now, I will say this this evening. Let me say this. I already noted you don't have to have this great experience of dread and terror but you do have to have an experience of acknowledging how sinful you are. Because only those that acknowledge the greatness of their sin will ever flee to Christ. Those that don't think that they have much sin don't see their need for a savior or for much of a savior. And so what's interesting is that after God gives the Ten Commandments, he gives this section of scripture. He actually is going to give a gospel remedy because he knows his people are not going to keep the law. That's what's so interesting about this section. God has given his moral law, his commands, his requirements, but he knows that his people are going to sin. He knows that they need a gospel remedy. And so he's going to give them things like altars and sacrifice. He's going to give them instructions that will be attributed to the priesthood. And he's going to give them a mediator, which is the really big thing that they need. Tonight, I want us to consider the four things that we see in this. Uh, just after the Ten Commandments, we see that the people have a need for a mediator. And then we see that they have a need for an altar. And then we see that they have a need for a sacrifice. And then we see that they have a need for priestly garments. Those are the four things that we see in this passage that God is giving us gospel types and shadows in. These are these are things that are pointing us to Christ, ultimately, and the remedy that God's going to provide. I want us to consider first the need for a mediator. Notice this. In verse 18, now summarizing what's happening at the foot of the mountain, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, the sounds of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Now what's happening is the people are feeling what they should be feeling. Moses has given them the commandments. They are recognizing they have not kept them. They are recognizing the terrible signs of thunder and lightning, the, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, those, those tangible, visible signs that God has given them at the mountain. And, and they are terrified in their consciences because they know that they have not rendered to God what he requires of them, and, and they see the dread and the fear and the majesty of God. They, they recognize, at least to some very small 
extent what the writer of Hebrews says, that God is a consuming fire. And it's right for them to be filled with dread and awe. You know, there are sometimes well-meaning Christians will say the converse of what I said earlier, that every Christian has to have this incredible experience of the law producing a sense of dread and awe in their souls. And they will say, you should never be afraid of God. That, that God is just this big, big, huggy thing in the sky, and he just, just wants to cuddle with you so much. And, and that's not God. God is infinitely holy. The writer of Hebrews rightly says our God is a consuming fire and that we are to draw near to him with reverence and godly fear. Now, notice this. The people recognize that they need a mediator. They're, they don't even know exactly what they need, but they are saying at this point, they are saying, we can't bear to hear God speak to us directly. The word of God here in the law is producing a sense of dread in us. So Moses, you talk to us, but don't let God talk to us lest we die. They are recognizing they need someone to stand between God and their sinful souls. They are recognizing there has to be one from among them who can represent them before God and can speak to them from God on their behalf. And so they are really truly recognizing their need for a mediator. Uh, Phil Riken, acknowledging what Israel is experiencing here, says this. He says, we know what we have to do. That's not the problem. God has told us what to do in his law. The problem is that we can't do it. If we were able to keep the law, we could be saved by it. But since we cannot keep it, we can only be condemned by it. Like the Israelites, we should be standing at a distance, trembling with fear, and we should be seeking a mediator to stand between God and our sinful souls. That's, that's the first thing that we see after God gives his moral law at Sinai, is that we have to have a mediator. Now, Moses is the old covenant mediator. He is the typical redeemer. Um, he will function as the only mediator in one sense that God ever gave Israel in the old covenant. Now, he will give Israel priests who will represent them and mediate on their behalf and sacrifice for them. And so in one sense, all the priests were mediators, but there was only one mediator in the old covenant, and that was Moses. And God had appointed him to stand between himself and the people, to represent him to the people, and to represent the people to him. And in so far as he is doing that, he is a type of Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is going to make a huge deal about this. He's going to say that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant built on better promises. That what Israel saw that they needed in Moses, they didn't really understand they needed something even more than Moses. And here's the remarkable thing. The mediator that they needed, the mediator that we have in Jesus, is both the terrible, dreadful God who is thundering at Sinai, and he is fully man, just like us. He is fully God in all of his majesty and splendor. Um, the Apostle John tells us in John 1 that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He tells us 
in Colossians 1, that he is before all things, and in him all things consist, that in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. He is the uncreated eternal God. He is just as much God as the Father. He is just as much God as the Holy Spirit. And so we have a better mediator than Israel had. See, Moses couldn't really do for Israel what they needed him to do. Um, he could serve in a typical fashion for a time, but he couldn't, he couldn't truly offer himself for them. He couldn't take away their sins. He couldn't go into the very heavenly presence of God and sit on the throne of God and ever live to make intercession for them. And so the writer of Hebrews draws out the parallel between Moses and Christ, between this mountain and Mount Zion. I love this. Phil Riken. He says, Jesus does everything a mediator is supposed to do. He goes to God for us. He is our go-between, the one who approaches the thick darkness where God is. He is able to do this much more effectively than Moses ever did because he is God as well as man. Jesus has a divine nature and a human nature. Jesus does something that Moses could never do. He offers perfect obedience to the law. Isn't that interesting? Moses just gave the law, but Moses can't keep the law himself. Jesus can offer perfect obedience and did to the Ten Commandments. Riken says he offers perfect obedience to the law. Whatever mediation Moses offered was limited by the fact that he was himself a lawbreaker. He was not able to offer perfect obedience to the Ten Commandments. But Jesus could do it. When he presented himself to God, Jesus said, Here I am. I have come to do your will, O God. And then he did it perfectly. Jesus worshiped God alone, honored God's name, kept the Sabbath holy, obeyed his parents, loved his enemies, told the truth, and did everything God commanded him to do. Now that is remarkable, that immediately after God gives those commandments you can't keep by nature, he shows us there's going to be a mediator. And it's not going to be Moses. He's just going to point forward to him. And he's going to do that wonderful work of mediation for us. Um, you know, every time we pray, every time we come to worship, every time we read the word, every time we sing, we should remember that we need and we have a mediator who makes our worship and our prayer and our reading and our Christian living effectual because he has interposed himself for us in our place to represent us. Now, notice that it wasn't just a mediator that they needed. Notice um, down in verse 22 that the Lord, after telling Israel that through Moses that he has talked from heaven that they are to have no other gods, gods of silver, gods of gold, that they are to avoid all forms of idolatry. Notice verse 24, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Now, this has always fascinated me. Immediately after giving the Ten Commandments, God gives sacrifice. And sacrifice only makes sense if you understand what you're sacrificing for. And the only thing that you're sacrificing for, the burnt offerings especially, are violations to the law of God. 
There's this magnificent uh, picture that God gives at the end of Deuteronomy after reiterating all 613 of the commandments in the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and then he pronounces all of those blessings and curses. If you obey, bless, blessing this, your dough will be blessed. Everything will be blessed everywhere. If you disobey, cursing. If you do this, there will be thick darkness. There will be these essential plagues that I'll send on you. And you are not meant to read that and think, if I obey, my dough is going to be blessed. How do I know that? Because you haven't obeyed. No one could obey. And right after God gave all the covenant blessings and cursings in Deuteronomy, he gave his people instructions and he said, I want you to take these stones. I want you to whitewash them. I want you to write all the words of the law on them. Then I want you to take those stones with the words of the law on them. I want you to set them up as an altar and I want you to sacrifice on them because there's got to be blood covering your offenses. That's, that's how we know that because we're under a curse by nature. Because God has provided a gracious sacrificial system to atone for the sins of his people. And he's doing the same thing here. He gives the Ten Commandments, and now he says, you're going to need an altar. Now, I want to show you something interesting. Notice when he talks about the construction of the altar in verse 25, he says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. What is the point of that? That seems like a very odd detail. Well, I would say a couple things. One is there is a very clear principle in this passage that we're looking at that God wants to be worshipped in the very specific ways that he instructs his people. This is one of the, the premier passages in Scripture where we learn that God wants to be worshipped in very specific ways and that we dare not take to ourselves how we want to worship him. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, when he is reflecting on what's happening at Sinai and everything there, um, he will say, let us serve him with reverence and godly fear. There, there was that call. Remember the Lord even says um, through Moses to the people, don't be afraid, fear God. Don't, don't live in slavish fear, but give him that reverence, that filial reverence that is due to him and, and worship him with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. And, and God is giving very specific details, but I think it's more than that. I think it's more than that. Many theologians have noted that um, in the pagan temples, in the cultic practices of the ancient Near East, that, that the stones that these cults and these uh, false r religious adherents would set up were, were ornate. They were perfectly smooth. They were decorative. And they, and they brought attention to the people. They, 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 they said, this is what we have done. This is the work of our hands. And certainly the Lord is entering in in some way with Israel to explain, don't be like these pagan nations with their false gods and false temples and false altars and false sacrifices. And, and I want you to be a distinct people, but I think there's even more to it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, I love this. Listen very, very carefully. Spurgeon says God's altar was be, to be built of unhewn stones that no trace of human skill or labor might be seen on it. 
The proud heart of man is very anxious to have a hand in the justification of his soul before God. It were well if sinners would remember that so far from perfecting the Savior's work, their carnal confidence only pollutes and dishonors it. The, listen to this. The Lord alone must be exalted in the work of atonement. Not a single mark of man's chisel or hammer will be endured. Isn't that amazing? You are not going in any way whatsoever add one human thing to the sacrificial system, not even the altar on which the sacrifice is going to be made. It is all going to be of me. I think there's more. I also think there is something sort of foolish about this. There's nothing ornate about it. There's nothing, there's nothing that if the other nations were passing by Israel at this point and they were looking on at what they were doing, they'd be like, that's impressive. In fact, they'd be like, look at those primitive people setting up those nasty old stones and an earthy altar. What's the point of that? When we look at the cross, which is the altar, there is nothing impressive about it to human eyes. You worship a savior who was nailed to a tree. The world finds that supremely foolish. You have a king over a kingdom that endures forever that established that kingdom by bleeding from a tree to which he was nailed for your sin. And that is supremely foolish. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. There's nothing impressive about that by worldly standards. That is a raw, earthy, unhewn, stoned altar on which Christ was nailed. Um, and so we need a mediator. We need an altar, and we need sacrifice. Now, you'll notice that already here, before God has given any of the instruction to Israel about what sort of sacrifices he would give them in the sacrificial system, he intimates what's coming. In, in a very real sense, you could take everything that the Lord says in verse 22 to verse 26, and in summary form, it contains in, in a kernel form everything else he's going to give Israel as he develops out his ceremonial commands for them and how they're to worship and what they're to do. Ultimately, um, in the tabernacle, when he gives at the end of this book, there's instructions about his dwelling place, where those sacrifices would be made. But here in kernel form, the Lord is giving Israel everything necessary for them to be able to approach him. And the single thing they really need more than anything is blood sacrifice. They need a burnt offering that is going to be consumed by the wrath of God. They need a peace offering that is going to bring reconciliation with God. And those are the two sides of the most important aspects of what Jesus does at the cross. He is the burnt offering that is consumed under the fire of God's wrath for our sin. I don't know how long it's been since the Methodist Church preached the gospel. I'm not trying to take a cheap shot at the Methodist Church, but probably in most, a very long time. But they have a logo of a cross with flames going up around it. And it's a very powerful symbol because it's the symbol of the burnt offering and that Jesus is going to be consumed in the fire of God's wrath. There's another picture of this in the Old Testament. Remember when... Remember when the angel of the Lord, who I believe is Christ, a, a pre-incarnate Christ, remember when the angel of the Lord comes and appears to Moses' parents, Manoah and, and her husband, 
and he appears to Moses' parents, or I'm sorry, Samson's, not Moses', Samson's parents, and he says, you're going to have a son, and he, he tells them all these things, and then Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name? And the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask me my name, seeing it is wonderful? And then Manoah realizes that he has to sacrifice. Something is happening. And so he goes to make an offering to the Lord. And, and he puts his sacrifice on this rock and fire comes down out of heaven to consume that sacrifice. And as the fire is coming down and consuming that sacrifice, the angel of the Lord goes up into the fire. What's the point of that? This is a picture that Christ would be the sacrifice that is consumed as the burnt offering. He is going up into the flames of God's wrath to take the wrath that we deserve under him because of our sin. And here, I think, even in the intimation of the burnt offering and then the peace offering, there's that picture of propitiation, wrath removed, and reconciliation, peace with God. Now, we know that these animals pointed to Christ because the writer of Hebrews tells us that the law had a shadow of the good things to come, but it was not of the substance, and that the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, could never take away sin. It could never make the worshiper perfect, or else they would have ceased to have offered them. But they were offered year after year, animal after animal. Writer of Hebrews says it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God by a single offering. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You see, Moses points to Christ. The altar points to the cross. The sacrifice points to Jesus. And then notice this last thing, this very odd detail in verse 26. In the fourth place, we have a need for a priestly covering. Here he says, you shall not go up by my by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now, you may say, what in the world is that about? Going up the steps of the altar and your nakedness being exposed. Well, I think there are two options. The first is that there is a lot of evidence that in the ancient Near East, many of the fertility god priests would minister on behalf of the people naked because there was sexual immorality involved in their services. And it is possible that that's what is being intimated here. I think, though, there may be more than this because uh, here the Lord is speaking to all the people. He's not yet established the priesthood. This is a very important point. He's going to do that very soon in the book of Exodus. And when he does in chapter 28, he's going to give this same instruction to the priests that they are to wear the priestly garments so that their nakedness is not exposed. And, and I think there may possibly be an allusion here all the way back to the garden and to that time when Adam and Eve sinned against God their eyes were open, they realized they were naked, they sewed fig leaves, and they tried to cover themselves. And that the nakedness that they experienced was the nakedness, not just of their physical bodies, but of their guilty souls before God. And that ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the history of redemption is about how God is going to solve the problem of our nakedness 
our sinful guilt, our shame, our corruption, and how he's ultimately going to do it by giving us the robes of righteousness of Jesus. What was the point of the priestly garment? It was pointing forward to what God was going to do. Remember when Christ came, and John tells us when, when they were taking him to the cross that they stripped him of his garments and they didn't tear his robe. They gambled for it, but, but we're told it was seamless from top to bottom. Many, many, many Christians... I think rightly have understood that that is a picture of the seamless, perfect righteousness that God gives to his people. Remember the account of Joshua the high priest and Zechariah, and remember Satan came to accuse him before the Lord and said, look at his filthy garments, and the Lord said, I've taken away his filth and I have clothed him. You see, I think what the Lord's saying is when we come into his presence, we, we need a mediator, we need an altar, we need to sacrifice, and we need to be clothed. And he provides all of that in Jesus for you. That's amazing. He provides every single thing in Christ. In fact, you don't do one thing in this passage. There's not one thing that God is calling you to do the way he called his people to obey when he gave them the law. He is providing for them the remedy to their sin. And this is the gospel news that John Bunyan or whoever drafted it said, better news the gospel brings, it bids me fly, it gives me wings. You know, when I get this, and when we go to Christ for all of these things, when we go to him as our mediator, when we go to him as the sacrifice on the altar of the cross, when we go to him for the, for the righteousness that we need to be clothed with, and, and we get that gospel application to us. Then when we look at the law, there is no more condemnation. There is no more dread. There is no more terror. And now we can apply ourselves and say, I want to obey the Lord because of what he's done for me. Not because I can in and of myself. Not because he will accept me if I do but because he has accepted me in Christ. He has forgiven me. He has clothed me in his righteousness. He has given me a mediator. You see how crucial this is? You have, in Exodus 20, one of the most beautiful pictures of the law and the gospel and how they work together. Run, John, run, the law commands. It gives me neither feet nor hands. Better news, the gospel brings. It bids me fly. It gives me wings. I hope that you'll be encouraged as you meditate on those things tonight, of all that God has given you in Jesus Christ. You have a mediator, you have a sacrifice on the altar of the cross, and you are clothed in that seamless robe of righteousness that our great high priest has given us by faith in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, how often we need to hear these things, how slow we are to remember them. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are all of these things to us. We thank you that you are the better mediator of a better covenant built on better promises. We thank you that you are the better sacrifice on a better altar. And we thank you that you have given us a better covering. And so we do pray that you would amaze us and astonish us with these glorious and gracious provisions. Our Father, would you make us a people who not only know these things, but who 
put our trust in the one who has become these things for us, who does these things for us, and who gives these things to us. Our Father, we thank you and praise you that you have given us access into the very throne room of heaven, that you have brought us to a better mountain because we have a better mediator. And so would you fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus? And Lord Jesus, would you give us joy and peace in believing? And would you give us grace to run the course of your commandments and to be conformed more and more to your image? We pray these things in your name. Amen.